After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hey everybody, welcome to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer, joined today on the phone by John Mioli, the Orioles beat writer for the Baltimore Sun. John's done the BA Top 10 Orioles prospects for us for a few years now. He's been here through the gamut when it was one of the worst systems in baseball. Now they're ascension into arguably one of the top 10 systems in baseball. They enter into the top 10 at midseason after the trade deadline. John, when you look at the Orioles now, obviously things have not gone smoothly at the Major League level, although 2019's final record was a little bit better than 2018's, and we did see some young players emerge. How do you kind of assess the Orioles' situation now, the combination of where they are at the Major League level with the talent they have in the farm system? I mean, I think I think that this first year, whenever you take over a team that's in the Orioles' position the way that Michael Elias did coming from the Houston Astros, that first year is really as good as it's going to get in terms of, you know, optimism and understanding of what's going on. And I think the Orioles did a really good job taking advantage of that. Uh, you know, the major league season was what it was. There were some nice stories with John Means, you know, breakout, making an all-star team, Trey Mancini having an all-star caliber season, even if there was no reward for that in that front. But, you know, this was a year for them to kind of establish what this was going to be and not have to really get pushed back on it. So they made the emphasis about the farm system. They made the emphasis about, you know, cleaning out some of the scouting and player development people that weren't theirs and bringing in their own people. They did all that type of stuff early so that, you know, if this team takes a step back in 2020, which is honestly pretty likely, they could still look at that and they could say, you know, this is our plan. This is what we're doing. We're trying to build through the farm. We're, our farm system's getting better. These players are going to start showing up. And you have to kind of understand and be ready for that. I just feel like they're going to, you know, this is kind of as good as it gets if you're the front office in terms of understanding of the timeline and kind of understanding of the losing. We saw toward the end of the season they fired a a number of scouts, particularly on the amateur side as well as a few on the pro side. With the the Astros, I should say, we did see them lay off a, a number of scouts, pretty much their entire pro scouting department, as well as a number of amateur scouts, and really kind of cull it down. Do you think the same thing is going to happen here with the Orioles? Will we get to a point with them where you essentially will have no pro scouts and the amateur scouts will be very, very, very limited in number? Well, the Orioles weren't really a heavy pro scouting organization to begin with. I think they had a couple of you know, major league advanced type scouts. They had, if they had four, I'm probably overstating just, you know, pro scouts covering the minor leagues, the way other organizations would have, you know, 
15 to 20. So that was never something they were super, super into on the pro side. And I think that that's probably something that's going to continue. They won't, you know, rebuild that to the, to the point that say, uh, I'm trying to think of an organization that does these things heavily, you know, the way the diamondbacks, you know, still value those pro scouting sites. I don't think the Orioles will do that. What they are going to do. I saw they were posting for a Southwest region scout who was, going to be an amateur guy and also get complex coverage i'm sure they'll have people who are responsible for both the amateur and the really lower levels but in terms of the amateur side i don't believe they're gonna really call that because that's something that i think they know they could get a real advantage in with this with these drafts coming up with regard to the draft we saw this year they added adley rutschman who was the consensus number one player in this class everyone expected him to be the number one overall pick really wire to wire uh, he had a fantastic season, led the nation in on-base percentage. Now he's in the Orioles system, had a pretty strong debut for them. What can Orioles fans expect with Adley Rutschman, and when can they expect him in Baltimore? I mean, I think the org- this organization believes that he's going to be one of those franchise players who makes multiple all-star games and leads this leads this team back into competitiveness. Now, when that happens, I don't think it'll be anytime really soon this front office has shown itself to be very very conservative in how they move players and how quickly they get their prospects to the to the big leagues you know they added ryan mountcastle to the major league roster on wednesday on the deadline to protect people from the 40-man roster in the past that's something that teams just do in september if somebody's hit 25 home runs been the mvp of his league and needs to get added regardless but the orioles said you know there's no real point to that They weren't going to burn a month of service time or kind of start that clock. They've been very, very conservative. So I think Adley Rushman will probably spend this year between, you know, high A Frederick and double A Bowie and then be probably invited to big league camp in 2021, not make the team out of spring training. And then once all those requisite dates come to pass, it might be time to bring him up. And I think that's when you'll really start to see this team start to transition from this rebuilding mode into something a little more competitive. With Adley, it does seem like he's the anchor of this. When he's up is when they expect everything to really start clicking. I know some of the reports we got on him as an amateur were kind of jaw-dropping. I mean, the things scouts were saying were best player I've scouted in 10 years. He has a Chris Bryant bat with an Austin Hedges glove. That one will always stand out for me. And that was from a scout I talked to who generally is less bullish on players. For him to be glowing at that level really stood out to me. Adley's obviously a tremendously talented kid, comes from an athletic family, has succeeded everywhere he's ever been, was the Oregon High School State Player of the Year, was arguably the nation's top player at Oregon State for really the last two years. He did win the Golden Spikes Award last year. You mentioned perennial all-star. Is it going to be, from your discussions with evaluators, 300 with 20 home runs, 270 with 30 home runs? And, And what level of hitter are we talking about here and what level of defender? I, I, I kind of look right in the middle of that. You know, I think that on his, uh, I think that on, you know, your top 100 rankings, which happen independent of the, of the, uh, you know, the team ones, I think that somebody had 70 power. I put 60 just because 70 power is kind of ridiculous. We're still talking about, you know, not ridiculous that you guys put it on, but it's just a really high number to put on somebody in that. But he, this is a guy who can hit 25 home runs and be that guy. He can do whatever he wants, I think, is, uh, is a cop-out way to say it. If he wants to hit 40 home runs and sell out a little bit for power, he absolutely can. But he can also, you know, use what I saw after he signed as a really, really 
advanced approach to, you know, hit 320 with a four or something on base percentage and be a catalyst that way. This is a guy who seems like he has the capability offensively to do whatever he wants. Defensively, that's something that people absolutely rave about. Um, it's interesting. It's going to be interesting to see how that goes as he gets used to, you know, calling games full time. I know he that was something he kind of enjoyed just because of all the data the Orioles give to prepare. It's not like, okay, I'm looking into the dugout and, you know, I know that the coach knows that I should throw a slider here because this guy has got holes, you know, stuff like that. It's stuff that the Orioles are bringing to him personally and he gets asked questions. He gets to learn about it. It's a new challenge for him. I think that part of it's something they was one thing that a lot of people said, oh, well, this is the one thing he hasn't done as a catcher, and I think he's already answering that and showing that he can do it. I mean, this is a guy who who could be whatever he wants to be, and I think a lot of that comes down to the makeup as well as the skills. Yeah, I mean, he's a tremendous talent, and, and that game-calling ability and his defensive ability is going to be really key moving forward, as you've seen many, many times over the last two years, and I think anyone who's watched the Orioles has uh, the last couple years. The starting pitching has been cover your eyes bad uh, many, many times. They have two very, very promising pitching prospects coming up the pipeline. Grayson Rodriguez, who was their first round pick in 2018, had a very, very good year this year in low class A. D.L. Hall, their first round pick, a left-hander in 2017, made it to the Futures game and really showed some promising stuff there for really all the world to see. How much of a debate was it? at 2-3 between these two, and what ultimately put Rodriguez over the top? Um, I feel like it was not super, I mean, it's not, I feel like for me it wasn't super debated. I just felt like with the year that Grayson Rodriguez had, albeit it was pretty similar to the year that T.L. Hall had last year at Delmarva, combined with some of the issues that T.L. Hall had, you know, as small and maybe insignificant as they were, I feel like it wasn't a debate as to who would be above who or whom i don't really know uh i need an editor i guess but i do feel like they're very very similar in what they can be they are the two you know in my mind no doubt starting pitchers in this organization with dl hall you have a guy who and i think the futures game kind of showed that there aren't a lot of left-handers with that kind of arsenal i mean he's up to 97 with three secondary pitches he got a lot of credit for carrying over what was considered the best curveball out of any high school pitcher in the 2017 draft last year in 2018 at Delmarva. It turned out it was a slider that just kind of moved, you know, in that similar way, and it worked. He's a guy who found, though, that he can he had to kind of re-realize that he could throw his stuff in the strike zone and get away with it. He was nibbling a little bit. He has a little bit of, uh, you know, loose command issues dating back to high school. That's why he fell down to the Orioles in that draft because he was walking, you know, too many batters in that Georgia high school senior season that he had. But those are all, you know, I think that if you're like me and you think that's just down to realizing that he could throw it in the strike zone versus actually not being able to throw strikes, then that's a really, really intriguing package. But Grayson Rodriguez doesn't have a ton of risk at this point. He is a sturdy, he's like a right-handed starter's body just like you want to see out of a Texas right-hander he's got four pitches he didn't really have a changeup coming out of high school he skipped a start in April to work with Chris Holt the Orioles minor league pitching coordinator and the new pitching coach in Delmarva Justin Ramsey who did a fabulous job down there he skipped a start and they were like okay we're gonna skip you we're gonna get a couple bullpens to work on this changeup he was already familiar with kind of working 
with those high speed cameras that the Orioles brought in this year. He's familiar with, you know, retooling pitches and retooling his body. And he was able to do it in one bullpen. And he was like, all right, can I just go pitch again now? And he couldn't do it. He had to wait a, like a week and it turned into one of the best changeups in the system. This is the type of player that with the Astros, Michael Elias and Sigma Adele wanted that growth mindset. Somebody who has the, not only the capability to get better, but really wants to and knows what goes into making those improvements happen. He's the type of person that can do that, and I think it's the type of season that vaults him into the conversation as one of the better pitching prospects in the game. Absolutely. I went out and saw him pitch for Delmarva when they came to Greensboro earlier this year, and it was one of the more impressive starts I've seen from from a young pitcher really the last couple of years. It wasn't just the velocity. He was His velo was actually a little bit down when I saw him compared to what some of the reports say, but it was still a great, great, great fastball. He kept it out of the middle of the plate, kept it on the corners, was able to elevate it for swings and misses, was able to throw it at guys' knees on the corner. I mean, it was just an incredible, incredible fastball. Uh, the changeup, you saw the progress. It was at least an average pitch. The breaking balls weren't quite there that day, but he didn't really have to have them. It, and just talking to him afterward, you're right. I mean, you get up on him, the body is like the stereotypical Texas right-hander that everyone wants to see. You know, he's strong. He's also very, very sharp. He gets it. He's both self-critical while also not so hard on himself that he hurts his performance. It seems like everything is in there for this guy to be a potential top-of-the-rotation starter. Could you go future number one starter on him, or was most of your scouting feedback more in that 2-3 world? I think a lot of it was more in the in the 2-3 range, and that's not a knock on him. That's, you know, I think, I think that one season of pro ball, however it is, you know, you could have a lot of people you know, who pitch well in, in low class A and would get that tag and don't live up to it. But he is a type of person. Could he be a number one for the Orioles? Absolutely. But is that a number one in the rest of the world? I, I don't. I don't know. I would be interested to see where he would slot into rotation if this team becomes, you know, what they want to be. But you know, I've heard. I heard people, you know, talk about Steven Strasburg when they talk about him, and that's that's a big name. That wasn't always a number one. It was always number one stuff. It only really became a number one in practice this year, but. That's that's a big name to put next to someone like that, and I think it speaks to the impression that he made on people this year. With Rodriguez and Hall, I know for me, just in the little bit that I've watched the Orioles system last couple of years, coming through Delmarva, Frederick, Norfolk, these two arms seem like the best arms in the Orioles system that, I, that I've seen in some time. I wasn't really following them when Kevin Gosman and Dylan Bundy were in the minor leagues, but it seems like those were really the Orioles' last two successful homegrown starters before John Means emerged this year. With Hall and Rodriguez, is there a sense that these are arms the Orioles have not had in their system for you know four, five, six years? I think so. I think that's you know a pretty fair assessment. I think that this year, uh, especially towards the second half, once he went to to Bowie from Frederick, I think Mike Bauman could probably be in, be in that conversation as someone who could also be you know a legitimate major league starter coming through this organization has kind of, kind of got the same physicality that that Grayson Rodriguez has big fastball his slider improved a lot I saw him throw a no hitter on less than 100 pitches against Harrisburg and it was one of those days that you know I'm sure anyone who's gone to minor league games knows the kind of games where you're waiting for someone to get a hit and then there's a kind of game where you know that someone's not going to give up a hit this was one of those rare second ones you know and I had people put him in that category with Hall 
and Rodriguez. I don't necessarily think that, given some of the talent elsewhere in the organization, that that was a fair place to put put him, especially after talking about basically one year of you know breakout baseball. But it's absolutely true. This is an organization that has been built on, especially recently. You know, these drafts haven't been. They've been productive from a pitching standpoint. You talk about people like Keegan Aiken, Zach Lowther, uh, Bauman, you know, Alex Wells coming up to the system, station to station, throwing 86 and from the left side and having an ERA that starts with a two. I mean, now even adding Dean Kramer into the mix, they don't have these dominant pitchers. They have good pitchers, but I think Hall and Rodriguez really are a step above anything that this organization's probably had since, <clears throat> you're right, the middle of this decade. Four, five, six on this list was an interesting group to me. Austin Hayes, Ryan Mountcastle, and Yusniel Diaz. It's three guys who have talent, but there's a but. They can do this, but. How did you sort these three out? And ultimately, how do you kind of assess the kind of big leaders they, they can and likely will be given their strengths, but also their limitations? So this was one, this was one, it's one of those, again, I kind of, and I think that this is probably something I've only talked to a few people who have known these lists, but I kind of deal in, in groups and then figure out the, the order within them. And these guys are all very similar, like you said. I have Austin Hayes above them, above the other two, just because I've always felt like the Austin Hayes who went from A ball to the big leagues in 2017, his first full professional season, would, has been in there even as he had a terrible 2018 and really didn't do anything to distinguish himself until his September call-up in 2019, I feel like that's always been in there. You don't necessarily lose the ability to stay back on a breaking ball and hit it the other way. You don't lose the ability to be able to catch up to a fastball and not have to cheat. You don't lose the ability to you know, play a really good outfield defense. The Orioles not enough of him to move him to center field this year and add even more value to that. You don't lose any of those abilities. He, he's been hurt a little bit, various injuries. He really kind of, I think, put a lot of pressure on himself after making the majors in 2017. His body changed completely. He got a little, he got muscly. He got, you know, the bad kind of big, for lack of a better term, coming into that 2018 season. His body kind of crumbled under it. And combine that with some, you know, of the typical, you see it all the time, people trying to jack the ball out, pull side instead of, you know, using that all-field approach. I always felt like that was fixable, and that gives you someone who can impact every phase of the game, especially when you talk about him doing that as a center fielder now. Is he going to be what he was in September with the Orioles? That would be crazy. Good if, if for them if it was, and that would really justify that. But even somebody who could do that sometimes you can have a month where he hits 300 with six bombs and you know plays a good center field that's really valuable to a team in the Orioles position especially somebody who's going to be still I think eligible for rookie of the year now Ryan Mountcastle has the power bat there no one has ever doubted that he was going to hit he's gotten stronger he's gotten leaner he's become a better hitter a lot of people would say since since he's been drafted and while the Orioles will point to the fact that he doesn't walk a ton, he doesn't he's not like a free swinger. He just can get his bat to a lot of things. He's got such great hands that you know, and he did show the ability this year in Triple A from what I understand to kind of shore enough if he gets the two strikes if he gets into these counts that are disadvantageous, he will change his swing, he'll change his approach and just try to put the ball to play. All the things you want to see from somebody who 
has legitimate 25, 30 home run power. The problem, obviously, is there's nowhere to really play him. Depending on who you talk to, whether it's first base, left field, it's two new positions this year. Those are playable, but that's not something that I think the Orioles really want to traffic in. They've spent a long time having people who should be playing first base or DH, playing a corner outfield spot and bringing the whole operation out there down. I don't think that as this team gets to be good again, they're going to want that to happen. Um, and Yusniel Diaz, another player, fantastic tools. You mentioned D.L. Hall, the Futures game this year. Last year, that was Yusniel Diaz. He's absolutely crushing balls and making things, making it seem like he was going to be a real, you know, all kinds of impact player. I think he also threw somebody out from like deep in the outfield in that game, although I don't necessarily remember. A ton of tools, again, hasn't really put it together in games. He spent all of this year in double A, and I think that was probably a little disappointing to him. But he strikes me as the type of player who needs to get to the big leagues to kind of put the whole package together. It's not a fair assessment. Um, It's not necessarily anything that people have told me, but you have to perform to get to the big leagues. And I think he's the type of person who's going to kind of do the opposite. He might perform once he gets to the big leagues. And while the tools are still there, it's hard to deny that. You can't knock somebody with those talents way down. I do feel like, you know, he gets dinged a little bit because the performance hasn't necessarily been there. That was a really long answer. Wow. Yeah, no, no, it's perfect. I mean, with these three, considering, like you said, they're kind of in the same tier, is it fair to say, even though Hayes is ranked highest and Yusniel Diaz is ranked lowest, is it fair to say it wouldn't necessarily be a shock if any of these three ends up outperforming the other in the major leagues? Like, they're all pretty close in different ways, but the overall production could kind of go either way? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there there could be seasons where one's better than the other. There could be seasons where some of them don't do anything. But these are the types of players that the Orioles, especially position player talent-wise, have. And this represents, other than Adley Rushman, almost, almost all of their potential impact bats in the organization. So for all the talk of, you know, the Orioles – and Mike Elias and Sigma Dell bringing over the pitching program from the Astros, bringing Chris Holtz over, all this stuff. Like This organization is very, very limited offensively in terms of prospects, in terms of major league caliber players who can, who can help on that front. So these guys kind of are going to be the benchmarks of whether this is working or not, for lack of a better term. It's not fair, but they're going to be the ones whose performance is kind of judged whose success dictates whether this first part of this rebuild is going well on the offensive side. And obviously, none of those three were brought in by this current regime. They were all brought in by the previous regime. So it'll be interesting to see also the patience level. We see sometimes new regimes want to get their own guys in there and maybe are a little less patient with guys who aren't their own. But I do think you're right. It does seem like given the lack of position player talent otherwise the organization and, and how far away some of it is, not having these three produce will set the Orioles' potential timetable for winning back a little bit. Things would look a lot better if these guys get up and produce within the next year or two. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think it's important. I don't think that there's been any indication among anyone in this organization that this front office is the type that's going to quit on these guys. You know, they are... They give, you know, to their credit, they gave Austin Hayes a specific set of things that he had to do this year. And he left knowing how he did on those tasks. You know, they're not going to sugarcoat it. They're not going to say, oh, 
you know, there's no mind games. It's not Machiavelli up there making people kind of do whatever he thinks they should do and not telling them, you know, they give a clear, they give a clear, you know, set of instructions. Ryan Mountcastle is probably going to start again in AAA next year, and they're going to say, make yourself into a defender. We could put on a major league field and have play on television every night. You know, don't don't walk 12 times, even if that means giving away in a bat that you think you might be able to hit a home run so you walk. That's what they're looking for. They're not going to they're not going to sugarcoat it. They're going to tell you what you need to do, and it's up to the player to do it. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that because that was one thing. Uh, during the season, I was talking to someone with the Orioles who had been there through a couple different regimes, and one of the things he talked to me about I thought was interesting was he felt like this current regime – was more direct and specific in what it wanted its players to work on and also just kind of executing that. You know, he talked about there were times in the past it extended spring training or just spring training in general or instructional league or other areas where it seemed like a lot of guys were kind of standing around, just kind of going through the motions. There didn't seem to be a lot of specific uh, instructions as to what they should be doing. Where he mentioned he felt like this time around, everything, there was a lot more purpose to everything they were doing. Uh, the coaches were a lot more committed. It just seemed all around like a much more focused operation at the ground level. Is that something you saw? Would that be an accurate characterization? Absolutely. And this is only one specific example. I like a lot of the coaches who have been here, you know, through the through the good times and the bad times. I, You know, some of the ones that were let go and they kind of made their big calls and, and changed out some of the player development people. You know, they might not have, that might not have been what, I would have done personally, but I just remember every time it only it's not, it really only happened when I would book Frederick. But Chris Holt, the minor league pitching coordinator, now he's the director of pitching. He would be there, and he'd be working with you know somebody during their bullpen. And they'd have the Edgertronic out there, and somebody would be there with an iPad, and Chris Holt would have his cell phone out, and he'd be taking you know videos and showing them in between pitches. Here's what I saw here. Here's what you did on this one. It wasn't just okay. You started two days ago, go out there and rip 30 pitches and go take a shower. You know, that's what sometimes the bullpens would be in this organization before this year. And now it's, here's this last pitch. Let's think about this. Let's think about why it broke this much instead of this much. And the pitchers benefited from that. Some of them had more trouble with the overall philosophy than others, but you know, if you're a professional athlete, that's the kind of coaching you're used to and should expect. And I think it started to permeate all throughout the organization that that's going to be the expectation going forward. Absolutely. With regard to the rest of the system, uh, Gunnar Henderson, who was the first pick of the second round, was slotted in here as well. Then some names of pitchers that have been around the system for a while, Hunter Harvey, Keegan Aiken, Mike Bauman. Were these the clear back of the top 10 guys, or were there some other guys in consideration as well? Um, I think they were the clear ones in, in where they were, you know. Your mileage may vary on Keegan Aiken, whether you think that he's going to be a productive major league starter or not. He's basically been the same guy since he was drafted. The Orioles had him working a little bit on on their, on their his uh, off-speed stuff instead of just using his sneaky fastball to get away with throwing 80% fastballs and I think everyone knows that's not going to work at the big league level so they just started in AAA this year it's the type of thing that this organization does again let somebody know what they need to work on and allow them to work on it um, I think that in that same group you have you could have 
Zach Lauther could be in that mix. Dean Kramer could be in that mix. Alex Wells kind of in that mix. Um, but Lauther and Kramer specifically were the ones who had the top 10 consideration. Kramer especially. Kramer was one of those, you know, it's it's the toughest decision you can make. It's not who puts who you put number one, it's who you put number 10, because obviously the top 10 goes on the website long before everybody sees it on the handbook. And, and you are, you know, the person who everyone's asking, oh, where's this person? It's like, well, he's 11. You just can't see it yet. And uh, that's something that that's something that I struggle with probably more than anything else. But I think that it's all the t- same types of pitchers, pitchers who have had success in the minors, who have the pedigree to start if it all works out perfectly. If not, they're useful bullpen arms. And that's kind of where they slot in. You know, you put somebody like Hunter Harvey above both of them because you saw for the month that he was in the majors before they shut him down a future closer and I think on the grading system that we're working on it's really hard to it's really hard to ding that the way that the way that you know others who look at his injury history might absolutely he's been around for a while but the stuff is the stuff and we saw the flash last year that you know he could be someone that makes an impact for them in the coming years and really even next year you kind of hit on this a little bit earlier that they have a good group of arms they have two guys at the top and Rodriguez and Hall there's a good group of depth guys who could become back the rotation starters or a guy like Mike Ballard who could maybe take a step forward and become a mid-rotation guy Part of what we do here at BA is we map out the projected future lineups, and you hit it right on the head as we were looking for options at shortstop, second base, just the infield in general. It was difficult to come up with some names, finding guys in the system who could supplant guys like Jonathan Villar and Hanser Alberto, who, while fine players, I don't know if anyone goes into looking down the road and says, these are the guys who are going to be starting in our infield when we're a playoff team. With that, what do the Orioles need to do here in this coming draft? Again, they're going to have another high first-round pick. They'll probably have another high first-round pick the year after that. When you look at the system as a whole, what's the steps that need to be taken moving forward to make sure they have enough pieces that they can develop kind of a homegrown playoff caliber core? Yeah, I mean, I think I think when you say you're the top of the draft, I think this team is going to pick first again uh, in the 2021 draft. I think this is going to be a major step back on the major league side. I think they're going to try to get rid of every major league caliber players who's making any kind of money that they can and you know have i think this year is going to be a little bit of a a tough one here in baltimore but that kind of a digression what they do to make it so they have this major league position player core i think it's i think it's there's multiple aspects to it one of them a lot of the impact players that you're seeing you know get to the majors quickly and make make a lot of impact to double down on the adjectives or whatever I'm talking about is coming from the international market and the Orioles haven't had those types of players uh, because they haven't had an international program really to speak of that is changing Uh, are you going to get someone who's going to be able to be your starting shortstop in three years the way that Fernandez Tatis Jr. was or somebody who's gonna hit 30 some home runs like Juan Soto was when he's 20 like probably not you're not gonna get that kind of player but that's how you build depth to eventually make those trades to get those pieces if you're trying to do that on any length of time and otherwise i think that you know for all the talk of the pitching program the orioles brought from the astros to really to really bolster what they already had and work with the pitchers who are here and bring along the pitchers that they draft and this year and going forward i think that the hitting side is kind of the next frontier on that there's a lot of there's a lot of hitting theory 
that's out there that hasn't necessarily been tapped in. You know, everyone knows launch angle and hit the ball high and hit the ball hard, all this stuff. That stuff is kind of permeated, but there's a whole class of pitching coaches and pitching instructor, or I'm sorry, hitting coaches, hitting instructors who who have ways to work with private clients who teams are going to start trying to bring in some professional baseball and try to have, you know, a unique hitting program built around some of these same types of technologies and philosophies that have made pitching boom the way that it has. I think the Orioles are going to be on the forefront of that. Is that going to make people who are fringy bats that are already in their system into, you know, Max Muncy all of a sudden? I don't think so. That's not really the types of players that they have, but combine that with the type of scouting, I don't want to say analysis because that's kind of mixing things with the type of archetypes that they know works for them this pitching class of the Orioles had was full of pitchers who other teams didn't even have on their boards didn't even have reports on but then you see him and you say oh of course you know this guy's got a plus slider he throws 93 like this is an Astros Orioles type of pitcher they're going to do the same thing for hitters they're going to find guys who swings match what they want to work with they're going to find guys who don't swing and miss too much and they're going to say all right you're our guy we know you could do this and we know we can work with this so let's bring it along I think it's going to be multiple pronged approach but at least they're thinking about how it has to happen. They're going in the right direction. You mentioned the right direction, but you also mentioned you think they'll take a step back. Sometimes you have to take that step back to take two steps forward. In that regard, I would assume you're going off the belief that guys like Trey Mancini, guys like Dylan Bundy will be traded this coming season. Yeah. I mean, I think that, I think that there's, there's going to be movement on those, fronts this offseason I don't think that for instance the Orioles are going to pay Jonathan BR 10 million dollars as good as he was last year who was a 4-1 player he also becomes the best infielder on the on the trade market because there's not a ton of infielders on free, that are available in free agency so the Orioles could work from a position of strength there and Mike Elias has said multiple times you know whether he's asked whether they're going to invest a couple million dollars in you know real relievers so that they don't lose every game in the sixth inning this year. He said, no, you know, we're good. We're not going to just, we're not going to paper over all these organizational issues that we have for a couple more wins on the major league level. The goal is still to have as much minor league and organizational talent as possible. And he, they will not let the fact that people want to see the Orioles win on mass and every night get in the way of that. So I think that that means there's going to be trades. I think that means, there could be some interesting non-tenders coming up next month, and it's just kind of how this is going to go. And that's why I said at the beginning that this is kind of the as good as it's going to get because there's a lot of people who see why why don't we have Jonathan VR anymore? Why don't we have Michael Givens anymore? What is this new front office doing? Are they trying to lose? Like they can't say it, but yeah. <laughs> at this point, that's what's going to be the case until they get to the point where this team can really truly compete for a playoff spot. And bottoming out is obviously never a popular thing to do, and there is a mixed history of success with it. You know, people talk about the Astros and and the Cubs and point to them, but as we've talked about a lot here at Baseball America, there's for every successful bottom out rebuild, there's one that was not successful and ended up just resulting in six, seven, eight, nine, even ten years of losing. So we'll see if the Orioles can avoid that fate. Obviously, things are still very much in flux. This is an organization still trying to build up a talent base, but they're off to a good start. It's safe to say this farm system is stronger than the one last year and certainly stronger than the one the year before that. John, thank you so, so much for joining us. We appreciate your insight as always. Hey, thanks for having me on. Talk to you soon.
All right, everyone. Well, once again, that was John Mioli with the Baltimore Sun joining us to give us his insight on the Orioles' top 10 prospects and be interesting to see what happens. Go ahead and give us a review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitch, or whatever platform you're listening on. We'd love to hear from you. Once again, for John Mioli, I'm Kyle Glazer. This has been another Baseball America podcast. Have a good one, everybody. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.